Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read the whole, the whole chapter again this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God. And Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This morning we'll see that Paul and Silas and Timothy were thankful for the church in Thessalonica. But the one to whom they offered their thanksgiving is what's really telling. You see, it's one thing to be thankful for some act of kindness that that someone else does, and to be thankful to them for for doing this. But it's a totally different thing to be thankful to God for it. You know, there's such a tendency for our hearts to hear praise from others and to be moved to pride. There are good things that we do. The Bible teaches us that God has prepared beforehand what good works He will have us accomplish in Christ Jesus. And sometimes when others look at our deeds and they see something respectable in them, they might be moved to give us a word of acknowledgement. But we often take that word of acknowledgement and feel tempted to turn it into praise for ourselves, don't we? One of our greatest tendencies, friends, is that a, a tendency that we must strive to resist is the tendency to work for the approval of people. And when others see our works, we just love to bathe in their comments about us. Our hearts are so quickly given over to pride. Because of that, I think we have something to learn from this church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. By the very nature of Paul writing to them, making mention of all these good things that they've accomplished, it seems clear that Paul was not afraid that they would become puffed up. 
He speaks of their love and of their faith and of their hope and endurance. He has beautiful words that describe how God has used them all over the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. Yet he reminds them that they haven't yet arrived. Even this church still has need to grow. Sanctification has not taken its full course. And so in chapter 3 of our book, verse 12, Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. It's true, they had great love for each other. Paul thanks God for it. Yet there was still a need to increase. And brothers and sisters, this cuts at our pride. Because until we reach glory, you and I will continually have a need to increase in holiness. Whatever goodness there is in your life that you're doing because of your faith in Christ, there is still need to increase in it. Until we see God, until we are perfected, we have need to become more and more like Jesus. You see, the saint who is old in age and well-versed in the Word of God because they've read it dozens of times over, they still have need to excel still more. It doesn't matter what they know and what they've been exposed to and what they've gone through. Even though someone is advanced in years and knowledge and experience and maturity, there is an ever-pressing realization that though they are more like Christ today than when they started, they are still very different from Him. And they still have room to grow. In fact, the more mature a person is in Christ, the more mature a church is in Christ, the more quickly and humbly they receive prayers like chapters, like chapter 3, verse 12. Because they know, I have a need to increase in love. I have a need to abound in love. It's those who are immature in their faith that feel as though they've arrived. It's those who are immature in their faith that take the kind words of Paul here that are true about them and turn them into occasion, an occasion for self-praise. And so I love how Paul fights against this tendency by not simply thanking the Thessalonians for their well-being. He thanks God for it. While the Thessalonians have been faithful, they have been loving, they have been enduring, Paul knows that they owe all of these things to God. And so we see in chapter 1, verse 2, that Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians by making mention of them in his prayer. So the thanksgiving's to God, and that's further evidenced by the fact that he thanks God while he's praying to Him. And once again, this should humble us. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving to God. It humbles the mature church to know that while we might have many wonderful, beautiful, glorious things that are true of us, they are only true of us by God's sovereign grace. It is God who makes healthy churches healthy. It is God's grace that makes Christians more like Jesus. And because Paul knew this, the Thessalonians brought joy to his heart. Not because he thought that they were good on their own. They brought joy to his heart because their faithfulness in the gospel was evidence that God was truly at work in their midst. 
just imagine this, this wonderful apostle with his evangelistic team, Silas and Timothy. They come into Thessalonica. They proclaim the gospel amidst affliction. And they were forced because of persecution to leave town early. You can almost imagine the concern that this apostle Paul would have had for these Christians. These people who claim to receive Christ, are they truly going to stand firm? Or are they going to be like the seed that sprouts up and then after a few weeks gets choked out by the thorns around it? Was God at work in the Thessalonians? Was God at work in their hearts to receive the Word with a persevering faith? Well, as we see here, Paul is thankful to God because he has gotten word. He has heard that the Thessalonian church's faithfulness is real, that it's true, that it's genuine. And to him, when he hears this word about these Thessalonian Christians, it's clear evidence that their faith is real because God is truly at work in their hearts. And so if there were things that Paul saw and heard of in the Thessalonian church that moved him to thankfulness to God because he knows of their genuineness, then I think it's important that we have those things in us. Hopefully we have the things that would move Paul to thankfulness to God because he knows that church is real. That church loves Jesus. And so we want to ask ourselves, do we have those things? Are those things true in our midst? And if they are true, wherever we find them, how, do we, how can we grow in them? How can we excel in them still more? And are we truly thankful to God for them? So over the next three weeks, we'll be walking through this chapter and we'll be looking at the reasons why Paul was thankful for the Thessalonian church. And this week, this week we turn to the first reason, and we find it in verse 3. So let's read verses 2 and 3 together so we see it in its natural flow. Chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So Paul was thankful to God for the Thessalonian church because he remembered something about them. He constantly remembered and bore in mind three things. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. So to begin this morning, we're going to do three things. We're going to look at why faith, love, and hope were the things that brought thanksgiving in Paul's heart to God. Why those three things? Why faith, love, and hope? And second, we'll make mention of the true emphasis of these three phrases. So we take these three phrases. What's, what is Paul emphasizing in them? 
And then third, we'll make a few remarks about each phrase on its own, individually, one at a time. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. So why these three things? What is Paul emphasizing in these three phrases? And what do these three phrases mean? How can we identify them? My prayer is that we would see them in our church. And that when we see them in our church, we would rely on God to grow in them more and then we would offer thanksgiving and praise to Him for it. So first, let's take a look at the three things called faith, love, and hope. Why did, this, why did these three things make Paul thankful for the Thessalonians? Why didn't Paul list something else? I mean, why didn't he say patience, joy, and kindness? Or peace, contentment, and self-control? Did Paul just choose three random virtues, three random realities, and thank God for them? Or is there something special about these three? Is there something special about faith, love, and hope that would move him to thankfulness? You see, these three virtues are not random in Paul's mind. They are seen time and time again in the New Testament together as foundational realities in the life of those who were genuinely converted. In fact, what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is almost identical to what he said in Colossians 1, 3-5. Paul, in Colossians 1, gives thanks to God, always remembering them in prayer and thanking God for these three virtues in the Colossian church. So I'll read it. Colossians 1, 3-5. See if it sounds familiar. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That sounds like our verse 2 in our text. And then he goes on. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So there is this hope laid up for these Colossians in heaven, and from that hope, they have a faith in Christ and a love for all the brethren, all the brothers and sisters in their midst. And these three things cause Paul to give thanks to God in prayer. Now, did Paul just randomly choose the same three virtues twice? And give thanks to them for it? Or is there a pattern? Is there a pattern of these three? Well, we see them mentioned together in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Paul says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that means anything but faith working through love. So to be in Christ is not to be defined by your cultural upbringing or whether or not you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. To be in Christ is to faithfully hope in Jesus, a faith that works itself out in love. That's what it means to be someone who's in Christ. That's what a Christian does. And so if you see those things, 
in someone's life, you have evidence that they are genuinely born-again believers. We even see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. 1 Peter 1, 21 through 22. It says, God raised Him, Jesus, from the dead and gave Him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. In other words, God raised up Jesus and God gave Jesus glory so that we would have faith and hope in Him that fleshes itself out in love for Christ's people, for His church. These are not random virtues. They are the very things that you would expect to see if someone was truly a Christian. 1 John is one of the favorite books of one of the favorite books in the Bible for many Christians. You can give it to a new believer and they'll find it easy and helpful to follow. And you can give it to someone who's been in the faith for decades and they won't be able to exhaust it. They'll still find treasure in it. Well, in that book, there are two tests to see if somebody is genuinely a Christian. To see if somebody is genuinely in Christ. It's the test of love and the test of faith. We see it perfectly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes, we have the same root word there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. So you want to know if somebody's born of God? You want to know if somebody loves the Father? You can know those things if they believe Jesus is the Christ, if they have faith, and if they love God's people. That's how you tell. Those two things. And of course, in the other texts, we've seen hope also added, or endurance from hope. So here's the point. Paul wanted to know if these Thessalonians truly loved the Father. Paul wanted to know if these Thessalonians were genuine converts. He wanted to have assurance that their faith was real. I can only imagine how tender his care would have been for them. This was the same guy who said they became so, so dear to him that he shared not only the gospel but his life. And all of a sudden he was forced to leave town in Acts 17. He was forced to leave town early and he had to leave these new Christians behind. And I can just picture him sighing on their behalf. God, I pray that their faith is real. I pray that they meant it when they said they received Christ. And can't you just imagine Paul on his knees pleading with God, Father, please draw them into you and don't let them go. Especially when the affliction comes, when the excitement settles and the heartache sets in and the neighbors come and ridicule them for their faith. Father, keep them strong. And then he hears about them. He hears about them from churches all over the region, all over Macedonia, all over Achaia. He sends Timothy to them to check on them, and Timothy brings him a report. I'm not sure if you've ever waited anxiously for some kind of 
test result. But I'm sure Paul was on the edge of his seat to hear about the condition of these Thessalonians. And the report came in. They are a church full of faith in Jesus. A church full of hope in God's promises. And a church full of love for God and for one another. And Paul breaks out to God in thanksgiving. That's what's happening here. If there was something that Paul needed to see to have assurance of their salvation, it would have been these three virtues. Faith, love, and hope. And so if these are the three things that Paul needed to see to have assurance, then they are the things we must see in our lives to have assurance of our own soul. So examine yourself. Is your life marked by faith in Jesus? Has Jesus become the one that you trust in for salvation? Or are you hoping to gain salvation on your own? Is your life marked by love for God and for His people? Has Jesus become beautiful to you? Has He become a treasure to you? Has He become more important than the sin and things of this world? Have His people become special to you? Do they have a special place in your heart? Do you view God's people, other brothers and sisters, as your family? Do you have a basic love for them? Or are you indifferent towards God and His Word and His people? And is your life marked by hope in Jesus? Do you live your life in light of the hope to come? Does your soul find a sweet solace and contentment in the promises of God and the glory that is to come in the future? My dear friends, these virtues are the test. And might I add that if you see them in your own life, no matter how small, if you see them present, even if they're the size of a mustard seed, don't give thanks to yourself. Give thanks to God for them. God's the reason why they're there, or else Paul would have thanked the Thessalonians for their own faith and their own love and their own hope. But he thanked God for them. And so we should thank God for them wherever we see them present, even if that's in our own hearts in our own lives. Just consider another implication of Paul thanking God for these three evidences of genuine faith. When he heard of their faith, when he heard of their love and their hope, it brought joy to his heart. And he breaks out in prayer, giving thanks to God for it, always remembering, as he says, bearing in mind these things in his prayer. So I just want to ask two Simple questions. How often do you sit before the throne of God and just thank Him for the faith and love and hope that you see in fellow brothers and sisters? And if you don't do that, which I assume all of us realize we don't do that as much as we should, the second question is this. Is the reason why we don't do it as often as we should because we fail to bear these realities in mind? Do we fail to remember them in the lives of other people? 
You know, some of us have a terrible condition of always bearing in mind one another's faults and shortcomings. We're very quick to do that. Friends, that leads to bitterness, not thankfulness. How many of us need to change our heart and our disposition towards our brothers and sisters? Because I'm sure that there are some here this morning who need to take notice and remember the faith and the love and the hope that we see in one another's lives instead of always focusing on one another's failures and shortcomings. To have a genuine heart of thankfulness, you need to learn to embrace and have gratitude for evidence of God's grace. Instead of always looking to the evidence that they still sin. Of course, they still sin. But do you have a heart to see God's work in their life? Paul did. Paul saw their faith and their love and hope and he gave thanks to God for it because it was evidence that they were genuine Christians. Let us do the same. So we've seen why Paul mentioned these three specific traits. Faith, love, and hope. These were the very three traits that Paul would have hoped to see if he were to have assurance of their genuineness. But here's the question. Are faith, love, and hope the focus of this verse? Let's turn to the emphasis of these phrases now. I want you to see that Paul is not primarily emphasizing faith, love, and hope. He's emphasizing the fruit of faith the fruit of love, and the fruit of hope. He said he constantly remembered their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness or endurance of hope. You see, he's not talking about a work called faith, or a labor called love, or an endurance called hope. He's talking about a faith that bears the fruit of work. A love that bears the fruit of labor and a hope that bears the fruit of endurance. It's faith's work. Labor's love, hope's endurance. You see, Paul knows that the faith is real because it's a faith that works. He knows that the love of the Thessalonians is real because it's a love that labors for others. He knows... He has certainty that their hope is real because it's a hope in Christ that endures the test of time, endures through persecution. The emphasis is not on the virtues themselves, but on the fruit they produce. And just be sure, friends, that if the virtue is real, the fruit will show. Let's take a moment to zero in on each of these three phrases. We begin with Paul thanking God for the Thessalonian church's work of faith. We already saw in Galatians 5.6 that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through faith. Love. Now, what's the obvious point there? What's the point that Paul's making? What he's saying is that whether someone is a Jew or a Gentile, whether somebody has been circumcised or uncircumcised means nothing in Christ Jesus. 
So what does mean something? What does have any importance? Faith working through love. What matters in the kingdom is that one has a faith that works. A faith that does. You see, it's true in Ephesians 2, 8-9, as, as that text makes clear, that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. We're not saved by our works so that no man may boast. But then he goes in the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, And he says that those who've received this gift, those who've received this gift of faith are God's workmanship. And they've been created in Christ for good works. So we are in Christ by God's grace. And as those who are in Christ Jesus... God says that we've been created in Him to go and do good works, works that have been prepared beforehand. This isn't working to gain salvation. This is faith's work. It's the work of faith. As James says, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying that I'll show you faith plus works as though it's faith plus works to get saved. He's showing, he's saying, I'll show you the genuineness of my faith by my works. In our text this morning, Paul doesn't mention the specific works that flowed from the Thessalonians' faith, but I imagine that we're given hints throughout the letter. You see, for one... Faith was at work in their lives internally. This is how John Calvin viewed it. He viewed it as this effect of faith that's, that's seen in their lives. In chapter 2, verse 13, is an example of it. In chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is. The Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the fruit of this divine gift of faith that they had was that they received and believed and enjoyed God's Word. They took it for what it really was. This was faith at work in their hearts to receive the Word of God. Calvin would say, a rare energy of faith has shown itself powerfully in them. But faith was also at work in their lives externally. In chapter 1, at the end of verse 9, Paul writes, You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In other words, their faith not only worked itself out in sheer belief, but also in trust in God's Word. Also in turning from the ways of the world and from worshiping idols to turning to serve Christ instead. 
And in both of these ways, it's overwhelmingly clear that their faith was on display. It was on display so that all the churches of Macedonia and Achaia became witnesses of it and they began, and they began to imitate it. In essence, there had been a change in the heart and in the lifestyle of these Christians. Whereas before they worshipped idols, now they abandoned those false ways and lived for God. Brothers and sisters, what is to be said of our work of faith? In what ways are we set apart from the world? How is it that your faith works to show those around you that you are different? Does your faith declare to the world that you're not like the world, but that you're in Christ? Because friends, be confident that genuine faith works. It works in such a way that you will become less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. Your denial of self and your following of Jesus will be seen in, in some way, in some aspect. When you search your heart and your life and you find that work of faith, no matter how small, remember to give God thanks for it because it's there by His grace. Well, Paul not only said that they were thankful for their work of faith, but also their labor of love. And primarily what I think Paul has in mind there is the love of Christians, the love for one another. And I say that for a few reasons. So I just want to give you a few texts that indicate to whom this love is directed. First, take a look at 2 Thessalonians. Same church, different letter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to show you that the love that they had was a love for one another, for members of, of the same church. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. So their love for one another was present and it was growing. Next, I want you to see that they had a love for Christians in their own church, one another, but also Christians all over the world. And you can see that back in our book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Here's what Paul says to them. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now I think that right there, verse 9, is key. Because I think it's communicating something very similar to what verse 3 in chapter 1 is communicating. That this basic love for other believers is natural to the Christian because we are taught by God to do it. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. Not only their church, but the Christians all over the world. And there's a third text that I have in mind that nails down the objects of their love. 
is the love that they had for those in leadership in their church, their pastors or elders. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So in all three of these examples, we're dealing with an obligation, an expectation, and an actual presence of love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And this was something they exemplified. All, all three of these texts show us this kind of love. This is a labor of love for the church. But friends, it's more than a feeling. It wasn't less than a feeling. Paul himself said the Thessalonians became dear to him. They had a fond affection for them. That's, that's emotional language. That's a feeling. But this fond affection caused him to not only share the gospel, but also his own life with them. Paul exemplified a labor of love. The words that we just read a few minutes ago in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 10, they, they show this labor of love on display. So let's see if you catch it. I'll read it again. It should be easy to catch. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it. What's the connection there? How does Paul know that he doesn't need to inform them to do this? What's the dead giveaway that these brothers and sisters are taught by God to love one another? How does he know this? Verse 10, we see it in the word for. We have no reason to write to you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. How do we know? For or because indeed you do practice it. Now once again, Paul doesn't tell us specifically what this labor of love looked like. We know it was a love for God's people and their church and for God's people outside of their church. And I think we can have a good guess as to the nature of it. You see, the love that seems to be exemplified in the life of true Genuine Christians is a love that works for the benefit of others. It works for others' faith and for others' joy and for others' discipleship. We get a picture of this in Ephesians 4.16. Paul writes that the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The church is built up in a labor of love. And what that looks like is each individual member, each individual part, contributing his or her portion for the body. We also see that in Hebrews 10, verse 6. 
For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name. How do you know that they have love that they've shown towards His name? In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He's talking to people in the church there. This is a love that labors to minister for God's people. He knows their love for the Father by the fact that they minister to one another. It's a labor of love that works itself out in building up the church by the contribution of each individual part. Friends, if you just consider for a moment how difficult the work of love is, especially during the day of the Thessalonians, because they had poverty and sickness and persecution. All those things were, were normal in their midst. So in every way, the church had to practice love. You could see it. That's how all the people in Macedonia and Achaia knew it was there. They had a labor of love. Friends, I can't help but just be reminded that this is evidence of genuinely being a Christian. If you do not love God's people, then you do not love God. 1 John 4.20 The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So just consider a couple implications. Here's the first one. The labor of love that Paul sees in this church and that Paul gives thanks to God for is a corporate reality. It's not just dealing with you becoming a more personal, loving person to those in your life. It's dealing with a church, an assembly that lives out a life of love. A church that has a culture of love. So just think about the examples that we saw. The church building itself up in love through the contribution of each individual part. Friends, how else would you know that your labor of love is real? How else would you test it? How else would you know unless you're striving alongside brothers and sisters in a local church, laboring in love, sacrificially loving each other, building up the body by your contribution? You see, the type of love that we see here is evidence of genuine conversion. It's a love that labors and sacrifices and works to benefit brothers and sisters in the faith. At, at bare minimum, it would, it would look like what the Thessalonians did. They lived as an assembly. They lived as a church. They were committed to one another and life together. It's hard to imagine how someone could have sacrificial love for people, working for their spiritual benefit unless they're in that context. A second implication is wrapped up in the words labor of love. The word labor. We might say we love one another. We might claim to care for each other and have a deep affection. But the type of evidence that makes Paul give thanks to God is a labor of love, not simply a word of love. Friends, I can give you a word of love all day long. I can tell you how much I love you. I can bid my farewells and offer my hugs and say we ought to get together soon. I can even ask you how to pray for you. But do I follow up? 
Do I actually pray? Do I seek your well-being spiritually? Am I willing to sacrifice for your benefit? Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. And wherever we find those realities in us, we should thank God and ask for His help to excel still more. Friends, what a shame it is to be a people that are so busy or so caught up in the affairs of our own dealing, so consumed in the tasks that we have before us that we are unwilling to sacrifice and to labor in love. Make this your aim. Commit to love one another in this way. Make this your objective. One, one easy way to do that is here on Sunday mornings. You come here with the sake of wanting to strive and be here with one another, to love the people that are in this church. Make this a, your objective throughout your week. Use your home and your time and your resources for the sake of one another. Let us commit to a labor of love so that people around the world like Macedonia and Achaia did might just catch a glimpse of what Jesus is like and give Him praise and glory for it. So Paul is thankful for the Thessalonian church always remembering their work of faith and their labor of love. And the last thing that Paul says he remembers is their steadfastness or endurance of hope. Maybe you knew that the fruit of the first two were what Paul said they were. Maybe you already had an idea that faith has the fruit of good works. Love has the fruit of practicing love and and laboring in love. You'll see it. But not many people spend time thinking about the fruit of hope. Partly for two reasons. Neither the idea of hope, that's the first reason, or the fruit of hope are even remotely considered in today's culture. We throw around the word hope all the time. Richard mentioned it in our prayer this morning. I hope that I'll see you tomorrow. I hope my team wins the game tonight. Neither one of those phrases is remotely close to how the Bible uses the word hope. We think of it as just wishful thinking. When you say that I I hope that I'll see you tomorrow, you aren't resting all your confidence in it. You're not saying that you're trusting in the certainty of seeing that person. You're saying that you'd like to see them, but you're leaving it up to chance. So of course, if the fruit of hope is endurance, we would never think of endurance if we think of hope this way. Wishful thinking doesn't produce endurance. It produces anxiety. It produces speculation and uncertainty. Because of that, we also don't live in a culture that values the fruit of hope. Endurance has mostly been lost in our world. Just look at the marriage statistics. As soon as something goes wrong, people are making their way to the courthouse to to sign papers. Commitment to a church or to a job is at an all-time low in our society. If If we even begin to sniff the slightest hint of unhappiness, we give up and we just move on. We live in a culture that's very mobile. Some of that is not necessarily wrong. Some of that is just the nature of 
of the culture we live in today that is very mobile, that is moving a lot, and it ends up resulting in us hardly ever thinking about perseverance and endurance. We don't have to. But here's the tragedy. How do you know that the faith that works is real? How do you know that the love that labors is genuine? I'm going to read this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to see if you catch it. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. Can you just think for a moment of what Paul would have thought if he saw their faith and he saw their love, but then it just disappeared in the face of affliction? If it just disappeared when things got tough, you think he would have given thanks to God in the same way? Instead, they would have been like the seed that fell among the thorns that sprouted up quickly but got choked out. And so it's a shame that we have a lack of understanding when it comes to hope and a low appreciation for endurance because those two things give credibility to the faith and to the love that is real. Many people can act interested in Jesus for a few months. It's easy to say you're going to turn over a new leaf and join a church and serve people. But endurance is the mark of a true Christian. And endurance only comes about by a hope in Christ. Let's be careful. Because there's this tendency to have this wicked pattern. You, you see if you have this in your life, that when a new year hits, like 2020, or when a new series begins through a new book of the Bible, or when you first join a church, or first start a job, or first begin a spiritual discipline, or first begin to lose weight, it's easy, right, to feel excited and, and willing to endure and persevere. But eventually, it's not going to be the beginning of 2020 anymore. It's just going to be some random Tuesday. It's going to be March 24th. I looked that up. It's a random Tuesday. There's nothing special about March 24th. Just another day. Will you still be persevering then? Will you still be enduring then? Friends, may the endurance and perseverance of our faith and love not mimic the endurance of much of our New Year's resolutions. If we have an endurance of excitement or an endurance of something new, the endurance will stop when the excitement turns to dullness and the newness becomes old. The type of endurance that lasts, that lasts is an endurance of hope. It's not excitement's endurance. It's not an endurance of hype. It's an endurance of hope. And that's what Paul speaks of here, an endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the believers in Thessalonica had the sure, lasting hope of Jesus on their minds. If you take some time to read this letter, you'll notice at the end of each chapter, it closes by referring to Christ's return in some way. Just take a moment in your own time and, and read it. The end of each chapter will we'll conclude with this. And this wasn't merely theology for them. 
This wasn't just something that they had in their heads. Look at, look at the last verse of chapter 1. It says that they wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There is a massive difference between having knowledge of the doctrine that Jesus will come and believing in it to the point that you wait for Him. I think of one of the most beautiful passages on hope in the Bible. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5. through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's so much there to hold on to and to live in light of for the rest of your life. To be a Christian is to be someone who's been born again to a living hope. A hope in glory with Jesus. A hope that is imperishable and everlasting. As Christians, one of the divine blessings is that you are a people of hope. We're people who say, who can separate me from the love of Christ? Who can condemn me? Who can bring a charge against me? Christ is the one who died. Christ is the one who pardoned me. Nothing can pluck me out of God's hand. The Bible says we're people who don't mourn like the rest of the world, like people who don't have hope. We're people who know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're people who know that God causes all things to work together for our good, ultimately our glorification. We're people who have hope that the temporary sufferings are nothing compared to the glory to come. Dear brothers and sisters, are you captivated by the hope of Christ? Do you not only know of His return, but do you genuinely wait for Him? Do you not only know His promises, but do you cling to them with all of your life? If you do, friends, then you will know the sweet fruit of endurance. For every promise that we have in the Bible that we cling to, it provides oceans full of perseverance that help us walk through every storm and trial. The work of faith and the labor of love in times of trial is all because of hope in Jesus that produces endurance. If only we realize this more fully, right? If, if we're truly in Christ, we have these things. But we have such a need to excel more. If only we remembered, if we didn't become so forgetful, so prone to wonder, if only we remembered that the endurance and the perseverance you need is found in the hope of Jesus. I, I don't know how often you get distracted and, and you seek Endurance and perseverance by other means. It's, it's a great tendency, a great temptation for Christians to forget their hope and to try to persevere in this life on their own. 
So let me plead with you, brother and sister, to set your eyes upon Christ and His promises and find your endurance from Him, not from yourself. It's the only endurance that will last because He is the only everlasting source of hope. I look at you, King Street Church, and I'm thankful to God for you. I I do genuinely see in you a work of faith, a labor of love, and an endurance of hope. To be honest with you, I don't know why you'd be here this Sunday, this, this morning, if that wasn't the case. There's nothing that looks too spectacular here. But you all look spectacular. You are the handiwork of God. These things exist in you because of Him. We haven't arrived. We still have need to persevere. If this wonderful church in Thessalonica had need to excel still more, I know for sure that we do. Let's learn to be a thankful church. Let's learn to look at our lives, at one another's lives, and to give thanks to God whenever we see these three things on display. Let's be a thankful church unto God, always, always remembering, always bearing in mind our work of faith, our labor of love, and our endurance of hope. Reminding ourselves of these things will save us from a great deal of bitterness. And it will be the path to gratitude.